0: We're going to move forward in our discipleship series study. Um, the last few weeks, if you've been with us, we've been looking, if you want to categorize it as a theme, I would say it this way. I would say we've been looking at the life of a disciple of Christ. We're going to move forward now and look at the work of a disciple. And, uh, first and foremost on that list is evangelism. Now, I know, uh, I know many of you start to kind of sweat and enter into chills when I mention evangelism. I heard an old traveler's joke one time about an airline pilot who, as they were flying, came on the the plane's radio system and said, well, folks, I've got good news and I've got bad news. He said, "The, the good news is we're making excellent time. But as he continued, he said, the bad news is we're lost. And I thought, that's a perfect illustration sometimes I think of how the church feels when it comes to evangelism. We know we should be heading that direction. We don't really know if we are heading that direction and what that direction looks like. So this morning I intend to try and lay out for us as a church um, the big picture of evangelism. And so we don't have one text that we're going to look at. It's going to be a survey really. But we're going to consider three points um, so that we really get a biblical big picture of evangelism. First, we're going to look at the task of evangelism. Then we're going to look at the target of evangelism. And third, we're going to look at the territory of evangelism. So if you would, before we start, I just ask the Lord to help us. Uh, If you would go to Him in prayer with me. Father, Father, I want to just pause and pray for Waypoint Church. Father, as we're still young, we're new. Father, we're getting our bearings here as far as your purpose for us in this community, Lord. Father, I pray that you would fire us up as, as we see ourselves in this grand narrative of the work you've called us to do. Father, so often we live our life really separate from, from considering the bigger picture and where we fit in to that picture. Lord, it's your picture. It's your plan for the world. Father, and it's how you're bringing that plan about. And it all begins with evangelism, with proclaiming. So Lord, give us courage. Give us zeal. Father, as we've just looked at, give us repentance. Repentance. Father, as we just sang so many of these songs, give us a love for you, Father, the law and the fear of, fear of the law, fear of wrath, Father, such a, such a miserable motivator to evangelism. Father, as we consider who you are, as we dwell upon your love for us that motivated you to come to us, as the scriptures over and over testify, It's because God loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son to us. Father, you came in Jesus seeking to, to search for and save the lost. Father, may we dwell upon that great theme, and may that be our motivation for going to others. The very heart of Christ taking one poor sinner and using them to find another. We pray you do this work of evangelism through us, Lord. That we'd be bold, we'd be courageous, we'd be zealous with the gospel, understanding it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Father, may you reap a great harvest through it. And as we've read, as we've sang, may it all be to your glory, because you're worthy of it, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The task of evangelism sometimes, unfortunately... I think this task is confused. And so this morning, as we start our study on evangelism, I really want to, to define carefully what is the task of evangelism. Very simply stated, evangelism is the work of proclaiming or declaring the good news. So in this sense, there's missionaries and then there's evangelists. We read, for instance, in Ephesians 4, the office of evangelists. That would be someone who's full-time given to that work. But in the big picture sense, which is what we're considering this morning, we are all missionaries, and we are all proclaimers of the good news, the gospel. We just got done looking at for several weeks the the life of a disciple is really um, summed up in John 15 of, of those who abide in Jesus. It all comes back to Him. Our life, our pursuit, everything comes back to that. But as far as the work of evan- of missions, evangelism, proclaiming, this is where it starts. We have to see ourselves as a missionary. Most of us, when we consider ourselves, we don't consider ourselves as missionaries. But the first part of evangelism is to proclaim the good news. I want you to notice every single gospel identifies this prerogative. Listen to these verses. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, for instance. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Then Mark ends his gospel saying this in 1615, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Luke ends his gospel this way in Luke 24, 47 and 48. He says repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. To all nations, beginning in Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these. John, in his gospel, chapter 15, says this, When the Helper comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from him, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness. Every gospel identifies the task of the church as far as its work begins with what? Proclaiming the gospel, and proclaiming it in all the world, to all creation, to all nations. It uses several phrases to communicate the same thing. And so it's not surprising when you get to the book of Acts, which is the beginning of the church age, after Christ has ascended to heaven, what do we find? Acts chapter 1, verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the end of the earth. There are dozens, literally, more passages that you could look at to talk about this point of the task of evangelism is first and foremost to proclaim the gospel of God. And I make this point um, because Scripture gives so much emphasis to this, and yet I don't know if you remember how we started our discipleship study. I gave you a series of statistics talking about how many Christians actually share their faith. And very, very few. Three Christians out of hundreds per week share their faith. And it is primary as far as the work given to the church. So primary, in fact, if you want to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 with me. Paul makes this case for us. If you remember Corinth, I've talked about it. Corinth was one of the most difficult places Paul went to evangelize. It was a megaplex. It was a cultural melting pot. There was a a massive diversity of views and lifestyles present in Corinth. And here's what he says in chapter 1, verse 17, and it continues all the way through chapter 2, verse 5. Paul makes the argument... That despite whatever people might want, despite whatever people might think of the gospel, the primary task is still very simple. Proclaim Jesus. Um, For instance, begin reading um, in verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Go down to chapter 2, verse 1. He says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Corinth is a good starting place for us as we consider this first point of the task of evangelism is simply to proclaim the gospel. Because at Corinth... Paul contended with the Jews and the Greeks. And he says this message that we proclaim in the gospel to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. It's offensive to them. Because it essentially tells the Jews, your righteousness is nothing to God. You have none of value to Him. That was an offense to them. I'm a good person. I've done good things. And the gospel says, no, you haven't. And nothing we do can make us stand before the Lord in righteousness. To the Greeks, the message of the cross was foolishness. It wasn't sophisticated enough. It didn't match their philosophies of life. It was dumb. You see both of these reactions to the gospel and the proclamation of it today. In our secularized society, the message of the cross is very foolish to people, or it's very offensive to people. In either case, it did not deter Paul from the task of proclaiming it. And that's what's important. When we talk about evangelism, we got to understand evangelism is not, in this sense, determined by how the people are going to receive it. The task is the same. You're to proclaim it. You're to proclaim it. It will be offensive to some. It will be foolish to others. But to those who are being called by God, it's the power of God unto salvation. And that's what Paul makes his case. So even if people want something else, even if they think that it's dumb, or even if they don't think the gospel is actually what they need, our task is to proclaim, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. I want to read a quote from C.S. Lewis. It's actually out of a book Mallory gave me. Thank you, Mallory. And I don't have C.S. Lewis's book with me. But this is from his book, Mere Christianity. Here's how C.S. Lewis, who was a former atheist, put it. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us come with—let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to do so. What C.S. Lewis is saying is, look, Call Jesus what you will, a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. But don't diminish him to something he himself did not diminish himself to. And that's really so often when we evangelize and when we start proclaiming the gospel, the world will tell us this is acceptable to us so long as you bring it down to this level. But when you insist that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, they won't have it because that's too exclusive. The point is very simple. In our task of evangelizing, Paul makes it clear in his approach to Corinth and every other place, he went there with one message salvation in the name of Jesus. I love that aspect. Turn with me real quick to the book of Acts chapter 3. So often in this task of proclaiming the gospel, We proclaim to people who don't even recognize what their real need is. And that's how we see the world. You see, we see the world as spiritually blind. In fact, that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe, lest they should see the gospel, which is the glory of Christ. So people who don't get it, they're blinded in their mind because of unbelief. They don't believe, they don't see. In Acts chapter 3, there's a wonderful picture of this in the lame beggar. In verse 1 of chapter 3, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that's called the beautiful gate, so that he could ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him as did John and said, Look at us. So he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. What's this illustrate for us in the task of evangelism? This lame beggar who was lame from birth would be carried to the gate every day and he'd ask for alms. But really alms asking and getting just enough money to supply his need for that day was not what the beggar needed. What the beggar needed was to be healed from his lameness. He thought he needed money for the day, and Peter and John look at him and say, no, what you need is to be healed from your lameness. You see the deception that he was under. Very often, people who are lost look for remedies to their sin. They recognize something's wrong but they don't know what it is they need to fix it. That's why the task is given to the church to go and take to them what it is they need, and that's exactly what Peter and John did. They healed the man. So it is with the gospel. We take the gospel to sinners. Why? Because we once were sinners ourselves, and it is the only answer I have for that. There's no other Savior who's died for me. There's no other Savior who's paid the penalty of wrath. There's no other Savior who's satisfied the righteousness of God. I can't do it, and no one else can do it. So what people need is the gospel, whether they recognize that's what they need or not. The task Jesus has commissioned the church to do is to go and proclaim that. So what's the target of evangelism? Well, in evangelism, as in anything, your target will determine your strategy. I think that's true. Biblically, the target of evangelism is what? To make disciples. Matthew 28. But not only that. I love the first song Ronnie sung because it's so perfect. The task of evangelism is to make disciples but it's also to then establish those disciples into local churches who become witnessing churches. And that's what we see in the Scripture. So often we, we perform the task of evangelism and then stop. People are introduced into Christ, and then they're left as babes. Well, the task of evangelism is to introduce them to Christ But then to make churches that are introducing people to Christ and so on and so forth. So the target or goal is not simply to convert, but to convert, then establish and plant, and then reproduce. Turn to Acts chapter 2 if you're, if you're still in Acts 3, verse 42. They've been commissioned in chapter 1, verse 8 to go proclaim. Chapter 2, the Holy Spirit's given just like verse 8 said he would be. Peter opens his mouth and proclaims one of the best sermons recorded in Scripture. in verse 41 and 42 illustrate just this point. Verse 41, so those who received His Word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Let me break it down this way for you. Peter did the first point we made. He went and proclaimed the, the Word to the Jews in Jerusalem. Verse 41 tells us evangelism was those who received the word. Right? He preached. They received. What happens next? Verse 41 tells us there were baptized people, 3,000 in number. They were added to the church that day. So they were evangelized, then they were incorporated into the body. Then what happens next? Verse 42, those who were baptized and incorporated into the body were began to be matured. That's the process we're after. That's the target of evangelism. It's not just to share the gospel. It's then to mature those people into reproducing Christians. Why do I say it this way? I don't want to come across as though I'm against what I'm about to say because I'm not by any means. But I do want to make a point that so often evangelism And social action or social concern is confused. And the one usually replaces the other. What do I mean by social action or social concern? I mean this. The church so often is characterized by helping the poor, feeding the poor, helping the homeless. Um, Those kind of good works. We'd all say those are good things. And the church needs to do those things, right? Jesus said that. If you come and give me water... If you come visit me in prison, if you feed me when I'm hungry, if you do it to the least of these, you've done it to me. The church is to be about that. But that's not evangelism, and it can't replace evangelism. But often it does replace evangelism, and the church can walk away from doing things like that, patting themselves on the back like they've evangelized, and they haven't. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing the Word of Christ, Paul says in Romans 10, if we never open our mouth to share the word of God with someone, they haven't been evangelized. If all we do is give them a cup of water, as K.P. Yohannon, who had a missionary, who's a missionary to India, he said, if all you do is come to my country and give them a cup of water and a bowl of rice, you're sending them to hell on a full stomach. And he actually implored the church I was at, don't come if that's all you're going to do. My people don't need more rice. They need the gospel. And if you're not going to come proclaim it, Don't waste my time. He's right, and he had a hard message for us. It was good for us to hear. Evangelism begins with proclaiming the Word. Those who then hear the Word are incorporated into the body and then matured. This, hopefully, as the first song we sing, gives you a vision for the church, as we've been trying to put it before you in our vision statement, of what we as the church are to be about. Evangelism is the open door that people enter into the church through. And then they share the same thing. I like how one author stated it. He says this, The local church is the God-ordained means for the baptizing and instructing of those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. Without the formation of local assemblies, the Great Commission cannot be filled. When we accept Christ... We are brought into union with Him and then placed into His body, the church. So this sets before scripturally a vision for waypoint, who we are to be. We are to share the gospel, proclaim it verbally with people, so that they might come into union with Jesus themselves, and then themselves go and proclaim the gospel and bring people into union with Him. We don't simply want to bring people into union with the church. That's dangerous. When you fail to connect people to Christ, you're failing at the task given. Most often, church growth happens not because of evangelism, but because the chessboard has been rearranged, so to speak, and the pieces have been rearranged. Members from this church get upset, so they go to this church, and then this church gets upset, so they go to that church, and it's just we swap members. That's mostly how church growth happens. What I long to see for waypoint is this, church growth happening because people are being saved and added to the body of Christ. But that can only happen biblically if we're willing to open our mouth and share. That's the task. God had such a high view of proclaiming the good news. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, it pleased him through what we preach to save those who believe. God is pleased with preaching the gospel. Some th- think it's foolish. Some are offended. Those who believe, it pleases God to save them. Look at these passages. I'll read them to you. To, to highlight this process in the target, evangelize, incorporate into the body, and then reproduce that. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1, 8, and 9. He says, not only... Did they receive his word in much affliction? So they were evangelized and they received it. He says, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in the Lord has gone forth everywhere. They received the word from Paul, then what they do? They turned around and shared it, proclaimed it. It sounded forth. Second Corinthians four, I just quoted verses three through six. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. In Colossians chapter one, I love how Paul states this. Paul talks about how he became a minister of the church quote, to make the Word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. Paul was made a minister to proclaim this mystery. He's made it known. The church then is to take that and keep proclaiming. I read a short biography of a missionary. His name was Jens Haven. He was a missionary to the Eskimo Indians, which... At that time, we're on Labrador. I don't know if you know where Labrador is. I didn't. I had to look it up. It's up in northeast Canada. Very cold, desolate place. It's unforgiving, harsh. In fact, a previous missionary that he knew very well had attempted to enter Labrador to establish a church there and was killed by these very Eskimos he himself was now trying to reach. In fact, in his attempts to reach them and establish missionary outposts, he, uh, he, he gave the story of a, of an attempt to reach a certain location and they were caught in this storm. Their boat hit rocks and they became stuck and the boat began to break up. They had to jump ship onto their little lifeboat. That boat then rammed into the shoreline, broke up. Two of his missionary companions drowned and he watched them drown, too exhausted to get onto shore. He was barely saved. It was a costly trip. He would eventually establish three missionary outposts on Labrador. But I want you to listen to his prayer. He took the task of proclaiming very seriously. Here's what his prayer for the Eskimos was. I will go to them in your name, O Lord. If they kill me, My work on earth is done. If they spare me, I will believe firmly it is your will that they should hear and receive the gospel. And he went at great cost to himself. As I read that, I thought, man, that's the spirit when it captures the hearts of the church. If if they kill me, my work is done. If they don't kill me, I'm going to trust that Lord... They're meant to hear it and receive it. When that captures the church's heart, we're willing to go. In fact, that's the very heart of Christ, right? I'll go to them. They will kill me. But because of the joy that's been set before me, I'll endure it all. And I'll save some. It's exactly what Jesus did for us. The problem with the task and the target is that very often we're not truly willing to go proclaim. And if we are willing to go and proclaim, it's only under safe conditions with the least amount of personal cost to us. This brings us to the last point, the territory. If you remember, three of the four gospels that I read earlier mentioned, as well as Acts chapter one, verse eight, a global outlook as far as missions. This global outlook didn't leapfrog local opportunities, rather just the opposite. Acts 1.8 very clearly says, you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then move outward. So global mindset doesn't overlook the local mindset either. It begins with the local and then moves outward to the global. But I want you to go with me real quick to look at this. Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. We're going to look at this statement carefully. In Matthew 28, 19, you all know this. Let me read verse 18 with it. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and of the Holy Spirit. I want to talk about this word go, because most of the time when the Great Commission is talked about, that's, The focal point. The way it's written in the Greek, it's not the focal point. The main verb of this passage is make disciples. That's the intent of Jesus in this statement. That's what he wants us to focus on, making disciples. The word go is what's called a participle. And the way it's written in the Greek is literally best translated as having gone. In other words, the command, it's not so much a command to go. That's how we usually take it. What Jesus is actually saying is, I'm just going to assume that you're going. And as you're going, here's what I want you to do. Make disciples. That's the idea. We are to go, but, but the assumption is we, we are going and we're going to what? Make disciples. What this means is that the Great Commission is not fulfilled in going, but in making. Making disciples is our focus. Not only this, but the Scripture depicts the spread of the gospel geographically, not simply ethnically. So so often, here's my point, so often missions is parsed and broken down to the people groups, languages, so on and so forth. Well, That's endless, right? Even in Clovis, there's multitudes of people groups and ethnicities and languages and It's not simply languages. Everywhere in scripture, what you see is geographics. The spread of the gospel. Acts 6-7. Just, just watch how the early church is talked about. Acts 6-7. The word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase in Jerusalem and beyond. Acts 8-4. Therefore, those who had been scattered, that's scattered geographically, what'd they do? Went about preaching the word. Acts 8.14, now the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. So they sent Peter and John. They were persecuted. They spread out geographically. Peter and John said, hey, Samaria is receiving the gospel. Let's go down there and check it out. Acts 13.49, the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. And that's literally the pattern. That's, that's the outline of 1.8, and it shows geographical spreading. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 1, 8, and 9 again. Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in the Lord has gone forth everywhere. What's the application for this third point for us, church? The territory of evangelism is geographic. And the idea of the Great Commission is, as you are going geographically wherever you are, preach. That's the idea. So we can't use the excuse, well, I'm not called to be a missionary. Yes, you are. You're called to be a missionary wherever you're going geographically. Even if that means you're traveling in Bo's case from Texaco to Clovis, you're going geographically somewhere. Preach the gospel. If I'm going from Wrangler Way, where I now live, to Walmart, I'm changing locations. Be a missionary. We have lots of military members in our church here. You get an all-expense-paid missionary journey every time they move you geographically. That's the idea. You're going places. Understand what the Lord has for you as your target and territory is wherever you're going, preach the gospel. It's very simple. So to sum up our points, in one sentence, here's how I would say it. Evangelism is the proclaiming of the gospel to the lost for the purpose of adding them to the church which then matures those disciples who then make more disciples in every geographical location they go. That's how I would summarize it. Evangelism is the proclaiming of the gospel to the lost for the purpose of adding them to the church, which then matures them as disciples who makes more disciples in every geographic location they go. The challenge is you have to see yourself in that. If you did remove yourself from that equation, you're really not even being a part of the work of the kingdom of God. That's it. I want to end with this common thread that may have been so common you might have missed it, but this will leapfrog us into the next few sermons. The common thread in all of this was God's chosen means. It's people. God, in, in His wisdom, Paul says, has entrusted to people jars of clay this treasure. We're messy, we're sloppy, we're sinful, we're a mess. Very often we're apathetic. Very often we're rebellious even as a church. You're God's chosen method. That's it. It's His love. His grace is sufficient for all of our mess all of our failures, all of our shortcomings in this process. Why? He loves you. So much so, he himself became a man to communicate to men his love. It's one thing for God on Mount Sinai to speak. It's another thing for God and Jesus to speak to people. One was terrifying. The other was humble and lowly. So much so, we almost missed it. God uses people. That's His chosen means. I want to read to you something of another book that was given to me of what's happening as far as a shift. It's happened in Europe. It's very much happening here in America. We are following close behind. In America, we've been on a consistent slide toward the anti-religious and secular for a very long time. This is not new. Christians... And you can testify to this are more and more finding ourselves on the fringe edges of society. No longer do we have a prominent place in society, a platform which we can speak from. We're finding ourselves as outcasts and our voice is diminished more and more. That's actually, I think, a good thing. That's how the church started. It started as a fringe element. It started from the bottom up. Here's what this church planner in Europe, in England, talked about. And he's warning Americans to be ready. He says this, 70% of the United Kingdom population, this is overwhelming, 70%, 7 out of 10 people in the United Kingdom have no intention of ever attending a church service. There's no intention for them to ever go to church Seven out of ten people. He says this, that means new styles of worship will not reach them. That means fresh expressions of church will not reach them. That means Alpha and Christianity explored evangelistic courses will not reach them. That means guest services will not reach them. That means churches meeting in pubs will not reach them. That means toddler churches meeting at the end of the school day will not reach them. The vast majority of unchurched and dechurched people, now listen to this, would not turn to the church even if they're faced with difficult personal circumstances or in the event of national tragedies. He concludes this, It's not a question of improving the product of church meetings or evangelistic events. It means reaching people apart from these meetings and events. Do you see what he's saying? In other words, let me say it this way. What we need, Waypoint, as well as everywhere else, is to catch the original spirit of evangelism and go to them. We can't expect to grow evangelistically by holding a service here and people flocking to us. That was not the pattern of Christ. Everywhere Christ went. In fact, that's what He told His disciples. I have food to eat you don't know of. It's to do the will of my Father. And the will of His Father was this, Go from city to city to city to city, proclaiming the gospel. That's what he said. I think this is going to be one of the hardest challenges for us to get ourselves out of this mindset of calling people to come here in evangelism, holding a more unique service, having the mentality if we just change it up and be more attractive. And the, no, what's happening in this shift of mentalities? People aren't even considering the church as a source of information or answers. Just like the lame beggar who could look at Peter and John, two men who are apostles of Christ, and say, hey, could you give me some money? And they said, no, that's not what you need. I'll give you Christ instead. And he's healed. You see the difference? We must break out of this notion of trying to become attractive to the world so that they'll come. Attractive or not, we go and we proclaim. It's not going to be attractive to some. In fact, Paul said that. It'll be offensive to some. It's okay. It'll be foolish to others. They'll look at you and say, that's stupid. I don't, I don't believe that. Okay. To those who are being called, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And that's the confidence. That's the theme of Romans, by the way. I want to end with that. Turn to Romans chapter 1. I think Romans is probably the greatest of Paul's epistles that he wrote. And Romans hinges on these two verses, 16 and 17. Romans 1, 16 and 17. And I want us to make sure we understand it. Paul says, this is translated in English I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. as it is written, "The righteous shall live by faith." I think the better way to translate Romans 1:16 is not, "I am not ashamed." It should read, "I am not shamed by the gospel." What's the difference? It's one thing to be preach ashamed, I get that. But what Paul is saying is every time he opens his mouth to proclaim the gospel, he's not shamed by it. Every time he preaches, people are saved. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation. Every environment, church, here's the confidence you have in evangelism. The preaching proclamation of the gospel is the God-ordained means to save people. You will not be put to shame by preaching it. Some will count it as foolishness. Some will be offended. Others will be saved. Everywhere Paul went, the gospel proved to be the power of God for salvation. He proclaimed it. Very straightforwardly, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. So today, as we continue... Um, Before Ronnie plays this last song, I just want us to go before the Lord to examine ourselves, because this will be a challenge for the church. But I want you to consider something. If the Lord is stirring your heart to evangelize, we might have an opportunity to do this locally. I met with the chaplain of the base on Tuesday. He's a new chaplain here. And He wants to work with us to evangelize, especially single airmen on the base, to go to them, to try and reach them for Christ. If you're stirred in your heart to be a part of that, I want you to meet me afterward um, to see who might be interested in that ministry. It's a local ministry I've been praying for. I want to search it out until I know otherwise. But go before the Lord and just begin to ask Him, Lord, what is my ministry here? How can I share? Whom can I share with? I want to be start becoming a proclaimer of the gospel. Our, our mission statement, our vision statement, we tweaked a bit before we published it because I don't think it captured everything it should have. It does now. Our vision statement originally said, we want to have visible faith. We do want to have visible faith. We want to live our faith before people. We want them to see Christ in us. That's, that's good. But we changed it to also read visible and verbal faith. Because just to see is not enough. People saw Christ, they saw His miracles, and they didn't believe it. People need to hear the gospel. Because faith comes by hearing. So let's take a moment, go before the Lord in prayer, and then Ronnie will end us in song. Father God, I just pray you fill our hearts with a love for You. Lord, evangelism always begins not with a love for the lost, but with a love of You. We don't evangelize enough because we don't love You like we should. Father, when we are captured by Your beauty, when the love that You've demonstrated and highlighted in Christ for us grabs our heart, father it will then motivate us to grab others so father i want to pray for a waypoint that you'd make us an evangelistic church by first making us a worshipful church a church that is in awe of you that we see your greatness that we see your goodness that we see your mercy your love father that you are worth every sacrifice that we could make You are worth every thought that we could have. You are worth all of our money that we could spend. And more, as we sang. You are better than all these things. So, Father, cause our hearts to draw very close and near to you. As we talked about abiding in you, Lord, may we we be raptured up in this relationship you've called us in. Because that will be the motivation to go and invite others to this because we see your great value. And above all this, Lord, you are the only sacrifice for my sin. Only you paid for it. No one else has ever paid for what I've done. No one else has even offered. You alone, Lord. So, Father, may you cause us to swell up with love for you, that it would bleed over and swell up with love for others who don't know you. Pray this in Christ's name.